Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is bright and early in San Francisco, the morning of Monday, January the 23rd, 2023. Uh, Monday mornings, um, particularly in January, I think are times where many of us wish to escape, to forget where we are and go somewhere else. Many of us turn our mind to somewhere like Venice, the great city in northern Italy, and particularly the Venetian Renaissance, that 16th century uh, period where everything seemed to have been reinvented, particularly around um, Venetian art, um, artists like Tintoretto, according to Wikipedia, uh, Venetian art of the 16th century captured all the, the spirit, the principles, the beauty of the Venetian Renaissance. One artist who's very much wrapped up in the Venetian um, Renaissance is a man, and uh, please excuse my pronunciation, called Giorgione. Uh, very little is known about him. He's a remarkably mysterious character, and yet he is responsible for some of the greatest masterpieces, artistic masterpieces of 16th century Venetian Renaissance art. Uh, and I'm thrilled today that we're talking with someone who has a novel out, although it's very much based on truth or his truth or Venetian truth, The Color Storm. Uh, by Damien Dibbon, who's already a, a best-selling writer. He's joining us from London today. Damien, is your book an escape? Did you write this both as Damien Dibbon and for your audience for them to escape the bleakness, I mean, the grayness of Monday mornings? <laughs> I mean, uh, for me, all books or films or, or any kind of art is is an escape. Um uh, you know, not. I'm not saying I live in a terrible world, or or, or anyone else does. But uh, who doesn't love to escape somewhere? Um, so yeah, that's that's my starting. It's, it's, it's escapism sometimes is a dirty word, but for me, it's it's absolutely everything I aim for. You know, I want to take people on a journey uh, that I myself have loved uh, going on. So yeah, I think that fits the bill. So tell me a little bit more about what it is it about the Venetian Renaissance. I don't think I did a particularly good job introducing it. What is it that's so inspiring, so romantic, so important still 500 years later? Well, so uh, the Renaissance possibly didn't really start in Venice, as it were. And of course, no one at the time was calling it the Renaissance. You know, that's that's a term that, that kind of we use sort of hundred years, hundreds of years after the fact. Um, but, you know, the, the figures that you, you most commonly link with the kind of the real heart of the Renaissance, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, they were more from the sort of Florentine school or they worked in Rome. Um, whereas the Venetian painters were a different, uh, you know, came from a different viewpoint. And the idea is that those those Florentines, it was all about the soul, the person, the, the human figure. Um, you know how the human figure is made up and you know leads you into it and uh, whereas the Venetian artists were much more to do with atmosphere uh, with color with the sort of 
you know changing and sort of texture the the texture of like the surface of life i mean it was almost like they were impressionists you know sort of three or four hundred years uh before they came along um so it was you know they would start with a mood almost uh and and, a, and, a, and an atmosphere and um you know that is reflected in venice it's this this place that isn't quite land, isn't quite sea. It's kind of ethereal. Um, it sort of loves its 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 sort of pomp, and you know, there's there's kind of wonderful surface uh, mm. of everything in Venice. And uh, also, it was a place where everyone, you know, where ideas and goods arrived first. You know, particularly from the east. And this, at the beginning of the 16th century, was this there was an explosion in kind of trade and venice was probably the place on earth you know in the in best place to to capitalize on that because at that time everything had to sort of thread through venice so it was an incredibly multicultural place uh it, you know there were sort of you know it's kind of like melting pots of today like new york or or london you know and it really would would have been very cosmopolitan uh a very exciting place and the air would have been filled with sort of you know, smells of everything you can imagine, you know, from around the world and sort of a wonderful surface, the the the, the look of everything uh, as well. So, so, so this look was spectacular. It was seductive. It was, as you say, multicultural, cosmopolitan, all sorts of sensory excitement. All, um, yeah. To borrow the, a word from your title of your book, A Sensory Storm. Yeah. And yet it was also a very politically repressive place. We look back to Venice for the origins of much of modernity, but not for democracy. What was the connection between all this uh, variety, all the multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism of Venice, and yet, uh, on the other hand, the, the, the politics were quite repressive, uh, a quite fierce state. To, to what extent could artists like the subject of your novel, uh, how careful did they need to be in terms of, of how they represented the world? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, as firstly, I would say that the, the Venetians, and I don't go that much into politics uh, within, within the book, uh, but they would probably have considered themselves at the time a fairly democratic place you know the, the 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 way that the the council was uh you know the various sort of city councils and governments were set up uh were were theoretically democratic uh and there were lots of sort of checks and balances on everything um but also remember you know artists were much more useful to anyone political than than the other way around uh because it was a way uh, you know artists were used essentially to sort of give a good image to to the sort of authorities, to the state, to the church, and so on. So uh, there wasn't, you know, if if you start kind of stoking up uh, unrest in any way, you know, then it's then it's a different story. Um, but it was it was fairly harmonious um, the relationship between the artists and and and. The, the state in this time but of course there is a key element of my story is that there's essentially a paranoia sweeping across Europe that Italy is you know they're going to start installing the the the, the inquisition style 
um, politics into Italy as it was kind of taking place uh, in in Spain. And this becomes a kind of key part of the story, but it actually... Mm. Don't give away too much, Damien, of no, the story, because we want everyone to read the book. But, you use the word Italy. Of course, Italy as a state didn't come into being until the last part no. or the, the, the middle of the 19th century. To, to what extent was Venice really just separate from, not just from the rest of the world, of course it was a trading state, a, a maritime state, uh, but particularly from the rest of what later became Italy. You mentioned earlier the Italian Renaissance in Florence and Rome, but did the Venetians think of themselves um, as having anything in common with their, with the peoples of the, 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 the southern part of the uh, Italian peninsula? I mean, I think language really kind of you, probably united them to a degree. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, they were they were very distinct and and all equally, you know, successful states. You know, so you have Milan, you have uh, Florence, uh, you have Venice, you have Rome, um, and Genoa as well. And you know, they were all in their own right successful. And so there was competition. There were undoubtedly uh, wars between them, um, but. It, um, I'm losing the thread of what the question was. Just remind me again. Well, the thread was how separate were they from the Milanese or the, Vino, I mean, or the separate, Romans in, or, or, the, or, or the Florentines? In the same way, you know, I think European countries are, are, are separate now. You know, they very much... So separate but connected. And to what extent did Venetians, if they had an identity outside Venice, did they think of themselves as Mediterranean and perhaps in, in the classical tradition? Well, I mean, they they not really Mediterranean at all because obviously they're, they're on the Adriatic. Um, right, but a, a, a seafaring... Oh, I see what you mean. Sorry, in, um, in in classical in the classical tradition they they were absolutely a seafaring power you know the the arsenale uh, which is in in venice which is where they built the ships and again there's a there's a couple of scenes in the book that sort of take place there was this you know it's like almost a city within a city i mean i describe it in the book as being like the backstage of venice there's this huge area where they now of course have the 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 venice biennale yeah. um and they it was said that they could sort of produce one kind of great ship a day got sort of hundreds and well, thousands of people uh working within this the confines which is a sort of great big walled city within a city so yeah, they had they had enormous power, but they were also very much a receiving, uh, you know, it was a, a sort of receiving place. It's where the the rest of the world, as I said, came in um, through, you know, through threaded through the eye of the needle, uh, and which was Venice. Um, so it was kind of it was open to it all, uh, and of course, let's not forget, Venice kind of came about. Um, it was in a very strange place you know this was a place you know 500 years before uh well actually 700 years before the kind of events of the book 
um, Venice was founded in this sort of lagoon, in this boggy, marshy, inhospitable lagoon, um, not because it was sort of well located at the time, because it was actually people were trying to get away from all the wars in, in the rest of Europe. Um, and uh, it was first founded on Torcello, which is an island just north of Venice. And then it, it, it grew uh, and it put, you know, the Venetians put, I don't know how many million stakes in, into the ground, into the sort of earth, into the lagoon um, and built the city upon it. Uh, so its defences were completely different from from anywhere else, which is why you could build something like the, the Doge's Palace. I mean, you look at any other building that's built, uh, any other sort of government fortress building, any citadel, and it's it's kind of got great big thick walls and tiny windows. And the Doge's Palace is just this airy sort of loggia-like building in sort of pink. Um, and they could do that because the defences were the fact it was in a lagoon. Um, so yeah, the the sea is is absolutely yeah. So, so it's really like as you say, it's and and that's of course its great attraction today is when you go there, you really. But see I wanted to say, and I because I realised I hadn't really answered actually your first question about why the art was so different there, and probably everything I've said since will it will explain it. Um, but I just wanted to briefly explain that um, you know some would see the sort of the Venetian Renaissance movement, perhaps starting with the Bellini brothers. Um, a lot of people will be familiar with the the picture of the Doge, uh, which is this sort of vivid uh, green uh, kind of colour going through it, uh, and this sort of in, intense back, intensely coloured background, and very very clear. And it's something about the light and the clarity and the sort of the surface of his cloak uh, and the surface of the clothes and the the colours and the feel of it that was just completely different from what was happening in the rest of Europe. And then Giorgione, who was his Fellini. Right. Student. So let's get to Giorgione, who is um, the, the 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 spirit at the heart of the book. Tell me a little bit about him and and, and explain why we know his art, but we don't know much about him. Well, I know it's 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 a sad state of affairs. Um, he, uh, I mean, we know we know a kind of handful of facts that he he died in his early thirties suddenly, probably from the plague. Um, he was kind of he'd had kind of enormous success for a while, particularly in his early twenties. He painted the Doge. He had his own workshop, which is you know qu quite a feat in itself. Um, and he produced, you know, 20 odd surviving canvas, you know, canvases that still survived. And, and, and really everything we know about him is from those pictures. Uh, and he was considered this, you know, this sort of pivotal link between what had gone before and, and what would then happen, particularly in Venice. So he, in fact, taught Titian, who was about 10 years uh, younger than him um, and uh, you know Titian obviously went on to live this extremely long life he didn't die until his 80s and sort of produced kind of hundreds of pictures um, and and there's there's a kind of joke in the book that Titian actually painted Giorgione out of history uh, and that you know there, there was definitely rivalry between them and Titian was one of those 
sort of ultimate, you know, uh, kind of masters of, of of kind of getting to every, you know, he he was just a he was a brilliant businessman as well as a painter, um, and so I think he might be responsible for some of the kind of, you know, for part of the reason that that Giorgione. So Titian, you think, sort of wrote or painted. Uh, your hero out of the picture. Why not write just a biography of him? Why the novel, Damien? Well, I mean, that's that's just possibly personal preference. I mean, I, you know, I, I, well, I am a novelist, and before that, I was in, you know, in movies writing right. screenplays. So, yeah, um, and your last book before this was Tomorrow, uh, and you're also responsible for the History Keepers, which was an enormously successful series. Yes, that's right. Um, and yeah, so I, I started writing books about 10 years ago, uh, and I've always come from that angle, you know, I, as I said, I kind of, you know, I, I learned to write writing for movies and that's all obviously about telling stories in the most engaging, exciting way possible. Um, so to me, it seemed obvious to do this and I, you know, I, I, that's how I like to learn about things personally um and i think it's if it had been a, bi a biography of george Henry, it would have been very short because um as i said almost nothing is known about him i mean the most of what's known is known from uh, the uh, the lives of vasari um how accurate do you think that is i mean um yeah it was kind of yeah I think it was fairly accurate uh, for the time. Um, I find it kind of almost impenetrable, really difficult to read. Mm. Um, but uh, it is slightly pompous, the whole thing. I, I don't know what if you've ever read it or what you... What you I mean, read. it's one of those books that everybody has on their shelves and nobody yeah, reads. But it, yeah, like, like A Short History of Time, it's kind of... I wonder how much people have actually tried to sort of penetrate it. It's, 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 it's hard to read and it's, it's, it's very academic uh, and he clearly has his favourite. So yeah, it's, it's not my favourite source. But in the process of kind of learning about George Enya, I mean, obviously you want to make him flesh and blood. And I think that's, that's what, well, those are my skill sets when writing, you know, I can do that. And I think in a sort of fictional landscape. Uh, what, what did you, when you say bring him fiction, um, flesh and blood, what have you tried to do with him that uh, you can't get from, as you say, Vasari, which is rather in, impenetrable and certainly there's not a lot of flesh and blood in him. I mean, I, it's really bringing his character to life. And obviously this, I'm guessing at his character because no one sat down and and wrote what he was like as a person. Um, but I have taken a kind of very informed guess from the paintings I've seen, from the tiny snippets that you can pick up here and there of the sort of person he was. Um, and he, I believe, was very charismatic uh, a very kind of magnetic person, a very kind person for what that's worth. And I, you know, I wanted to reflect that in the book. And so I think everyone who reads it, you know, one of the first things they say is they talk about the character of George Oney and, you know, that they fall in love with him slightly. And, you know, that 
that is what you know i want to write about people that you slightly fall in love with not that you hate i'm not one of those kind of writers so that's what i would mean by the the flesh and blood um but that just maybe from my days working in movies you know that i that i want everyone to be in some way kind of enthralling to the reader you talk about flesh and blood of course if you do get to the flesh and blood um, you get to the color. Um, the British version of the book has a Ewing color. The American version doesn't, but we know that the words mean the same. Is color, in a sense, the star alongside your journey? Is 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 color the star of the book? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's been. It was. It's just been utterly fascinating. Um, so, you know, the idea came originally because, uh, you know, for, obviously uh, you, everyone knows the Renaissance, they know ultramarine, uh, which is from lapis lazuli. And that was one of these, it was kind of the great color of the age and sort of every painting that you'll see from the 16th century, almost the key piece of it will be from ultramarine, which was the most prized pigment of all and it just came from one place in Afghanistan and it was incredibly valuable so the book is imagining there's another uh, pigment actually more incredible than even ultramarine and that may or may not be arriving in Venice uh, and all the painters are in search of it so that was my starting off point um, it actually the kind of the moment where I kind of almost had the idea was listening to an interview with Anish Kapoor who's the contemporary artist um, about uh, him copywriting a colour called Banta Black uh, I don't know if you know about it but it was it caused this sort of big hoo-ha uh, a few years ago because all the his contemporaries were sort of in uproar that one person was kind of laying claim to this black which was like supposed to be the blackest black you've ever seen um, and it made me think, oh, God, you know, of course, I mean, if it's like that now, the stakes were so much higher uh, 500 years ago um, when, you know, kind of being successful when you've got sort of, you know, 20, 20 to 70 people, depending on you, in a workshop was really a kind of matter of life and death. You had to win these commissions. Uh, you had to make your name uh, and, you know, colour was was one of the main ways of doing that uh, and the beginning one of the first this well the first chapter of the book after the prologue uh is 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 Giorgione going out to one of the outlaying islands um to see you wonder what he's doing who this sort of mysterious person he's meeting on this sort of abandoned island and it's his colour dealer you know it's almost like a drug dealer um and he kind of opens this trunk and you've got all these different minerals and colors and uh it, yeah it's just an extraordinary world to understand where color comes from because obviously you have all your, your the mineral colors you know your lattices and your cobalts and so on um but then you have colors from plants from uh animals even you know color comes from ants from seashells uh, you know, you've probably heard of Tyrian purple and, and I'm sure, you know, I didn't know that Tyrian purple was called that because it came from a kind of a mollusk shell uh, from the shores of Tyre uh, and it was the only place that you could find these particular shells that would give this particular colour. Um, and there's, you know, there's whole segments in the book about 
how kind of yellow comes from the earth and how you have ochres and um, magentas from berries. And it's just once you start looking, you just see it everywhere. And it was became so fascinating and such a, I don't know, for me, a compelling way to tell the story of, of the Renaissance and the fact that you have all these artists alive at the same time you you know you as well as Giorgione and Titian and Bellini you've got Michelangelo and Leonardo and Raphael uh and then Europe in, in the, the north and, and Bosch and all these people literally kind of at the peak I mean different ages but really at the peak of their powers in, in this one moment all essentially chasing the same um commissions uh, uh, so you're yeah. obviously, Damien, you're obviously a lo an art lover. You look as if you're talking to me from a museum. Where are you talking to me from? I mean, uh, for people son. just listening, uh, Damien, uh, the background to Damien is uh, a couple of works of art. Um, where are you talking to me from? I'm, I'm in my study. In, uh, you're um, in your study where your book, um, your book, it's not just your book that's getting a lot of press. Your home is as well. Tell me a little bit about this home in Southwark in, uh, in, in central London. Yes. Uh, how, how you, you seem to have sort of turned it, if not into a museum, into a living <laughs> museum for creative thought and art, a, a visual place. Yeah. Maybe you should open it up, Damon. Maybe next well, time you I'm do actually, an interview, we're, we're I'll come to, to London it. and we'll, we'll film <laughs> it there. We're trying to sell it as we speak, um, which is, I, I'm actually down, I'm not there at the moment, I'm down in West Sussex because I, I, I I moved between uh, there and London. Uh, whereabouts in West Sussex? Um, near Petworth, do you know? Oh, uh, yeah. I used to live in Arundel, so I know that area. Oh, yeah. Um, yes, I know Arundel very well. A lot of history there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I uh, People say that, that sort of going into the flat or auto here um, is a bit like kind of going into one. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing that uh, doesn't really interest me in collecting. I mean, just these two pictures behind, you know, one is uh, a tapestry of sorts, a sort of silk work, uh, and the other is actually a more modern work, which I bought for nothing in a local Yeah, and for, for just listeners, da Damien is zooming in on the couple of pieces <laughs> yeah. of... You, you'll yeah, have uh, to, uh, for, for listeners, podcast yeah. listeners, you'll have to watch the video. But um, I have, I now, uh, I am opening it up. I don't know, um, you know, if you knew about my new venture into making furniture. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm kind of frantic this week because we've got an opening uh, of an exhibition uh, in London, in Notting Hill. It's an exhibition, it's a pop-up, it's a shop. I mean, everything is for sale. Uh, but the, I have... Um, created all these completely one-off I want to say and uh, yeah I think it's fair to say extraordinary pieces of furniture uh, this was my my sort of first love of making things I trained originally at art school and I, you know I'm very practical um, and I, I writing this novel inspired me so much on so many different levels obviously the colour but the whole sort of magical world that kind of it, it created in my head. Uh, and it just inspired me to start um, making these pieces of furniture, um, some from scratch, others, uh, you know, I buy element, you know, I kind of find different elements 
uh, and kind of add them together uh, and everything is unified. Everything's, everything's got this sort of very strong color or texture and there's a lot of surprises and a lot of mystery, a lot of magic. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm finally, you know, putting, putting this out to the world because uh, normally I've just, in my flat, everyone comes around and goes, yeah. well, well West Sussex is very nice, Damien. So is London, but none of them compared to Venice. Let's end where we began with Venice. <laughs> There will be uh, some people here list, listening or watching, Damien, who have never visited Venice. Mm. So to end, perhaps, for somebody who hasn't, you might very briefly describe the place. I mean, firstly, I have to say, if you can go, you have to go. Uh, it, it, yeah, I think it is a requirement as a human being, if, as yeah, you say, if I you can. I think so. Um, it is like no place on Earth. And yes, there are a lot of people there, but what always amazes me about Venice, I mean, a lot, by that, I mean a lot of tourists, um, which, you know, are continually funneling through the city. But the extraordinary thing about it is you can get away from them so easily. Um, you just have to kind of turn off one street and you're out, you know, because essentially everyone goes in a triangle uh, between the kind of three big attractions. Um, and the rest of the city is there, is there, you know, to be enjoyed. Um, it's, it's, it's a sort of place concocted from the imagination. It is just extraordinary. I mean, I've been there at least, I'd say, 15 times, and I still cannot believe it, you know, when I kind of set foot there at the same time. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a city floating in the sea. I mean, that's, you can't put it any better than that. Um, full of exquisite, beautiful buildings. Uh, and of course, this is a city that has essentially worked, you know, the mechanics of it have, have worked for hundreds of years. Uh, and, you know, they are still in operation, all those mechanics, you know, the way that people get around by boat uh, uh, or on foot, uh, there are no cars. It, you know, it, it seems obvious to say it, but I mean, when you're in a city where there are simply no cars and there are only boats, the sound of it, the feel of it, the smell of it, everything is completely different. Um, and I just, everyone has to go. It's a requirement. Uh, if you can, <laughs> you need to get there. It's, it's like no place on earth. I, they need to, we need another one. <laughs> we need Thank one you. On